Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast. I'm your host, Roger Bennett. I say flash, you say thunder. Episode 3, Carantan. One of the most action-packed installments of the entire series. If episode 2 opened our eyes to the mortal danger Easy Company is exposed to in France, episode 3 delves into the mental traumas they suffered. It does so through the terror-filled blue eyes of Private Albert Blythe, whom the men first discover staring into the sky on June 8th. 1944, D-Day Plus Two. You're the first familiar faces I've seen. I ain't surprised. The draft is all over the Cantan Peninsula. Within ten minutes of that meeting, our men plummet into battle, tasked with taking the town of Carantan, France. The only place where the Allied armour from Utah and Omaha beaches can link up and head inland. To full frontal assault, right into the teeth of the German machine guns in which Easy Company take heavy fire and suffer instant casualties. Even those unscathed by bullets are not immune to damage. But things, they just kind of went black on me. You can't see? I think so. I can't see a thing. Hysterical blindness. The result of fear, which is really the central theme at the heart of Carantan, woven throughout the episode, from the Battle of Bloody Gulch, where Private Blythe does ultimately raise at M1 after some encouragement from Lieutenant Winters. Pour it on him, Blythe! All the way back to England, a place of respite, where Easy Company is returned, only to find out they won't be staying long. All passes are hereby revoked. We're heading back to France. So pack up all your gear. We will not be returning to England, boys. Anyone who has not made out a will, go to the supply office. Trucks depart from memory at 0700. My first guest today is a man who is a legend to the Band of Brothers cast and a cult hero to all who love the series. You may recognise him from his role as Colonel Sink, but in real life he was a decorated Marine himself, a man who survived 31 major combat operations during three tours in Vietnam. He was shot three times in 22 years of service and retired from military life to found Warriors Inc., a warfare consultant to the entertainment industry, establishing himself as the world's leading expert on making actors appear as close to true soldiers as is humanly possible, and making television battles resemble the real thing. So he will have had his hands full during the creation of episode 3, Karen Tan. It's magnificent to welcome a gent whom the Atlantic called the man who brought war to Hollywood, Captain Dale Dye. Roger, how are you? Thanks very much for having me and giving me a little time to join with my brothers in Band of Brothers and talk about that extraordinary series. It's a joy and an honor to speak to such a legend, Captain Dye. But first question up top, can we just explain simply to our audience what you do on films and shows like Band of Brothers? Would it be true to say actors are meant to be chameleons who can adapt to any surrounding but when it comes to impersonating a soldier, it's you who's needed to make that impersonation authentic. 
my belief garnered through experience over about 30 years is that good actors are like a dry sponge. And the idea is to pour on the liquid knowledge and let them swell with that and let them inhabit the part in a credible and believable manner. The problem with that is that the actual military experience and in particular combat experience is so far removed from most people's experience that you've got to find a way to acquaint them with the unique aspects of that. And I do it through full immersion. And prior to my method being adopted by Hollywood, if you will, there was a business of teaching them how to physically handle a weapon, how to walk, how to talk, that sort of thing. That's just too thin for me. What I wanted to do and what I thought was crucial to making a really good depiction of military men in extremis, what I felt was necessary was that you needed to get to more than just their body. You needed to get into their mind. You needed to get into their heart. You needed to get into their guts. And in order to do that, you have to have an understanding of human psychology, in particular men who are living in a unit and who must rely on each other for survival. That's not something the average actor does every day. And so my thought was, look, if I expect them to shine the proper long overdue light on America's men and women in uniform, they have to understand it. And to the extent that I can do it, I put them in that place and I explain it to them. We're going to delve into your methodology in a moment, but I want to first relive your pathway to this unique yet transformative role in Hollywood. Because you signed up to become a Marine age 17, drawn to service, I believe, at the outset, because of the war films you watched as a child. You were, quote, enticed by John Wayne and World War II movies. Was that the driver? That enticed me, I absolutely admit. But I lost a lot of that once I began to experience it in person. And I said, you know, as much as I love John, as much as I love the Duke, that's all bullshit. I mean, it's not right. It's not what happened. God bless John and a lot of the other folks who made those films. But they're not the kind of films I think should be made. I used to go and watch Where Eagles Dare, The Guns of Navarone, The Dirty Dozen with my grandfather who served in Tobruk. And when we'd leave the cinema, I'd always say, is that what war's like, grandfather? And he'd be like, nope, it's what Hollywood war's like. I agree with your granddad 100%. My idea was, well, why? That's nonsense. Fix it. Unscrew it. They've screwed it up. I'm going to unscrew it. In the military, you made a professional pivot. You became a combat correspondent, switching from someone whose job it is to carry a rifle and kill an enemy to someone who documents all war from its banalities to its atrocities. More than that, you spent years almost beginning to hone your sense of narrative and storytelling. I wanted to experience it all, and not just from a superficial level. I wanted to try to understand this. I mean, Hemingway was right. War is man's greatest adventure. And I wanted to be part of that adventure, but I didn't want to be just a superficial part of it. I wanted to understand it in depth. Being able to accompany riflemen, which I had been, and to be another rifle with them, but also understand their story and try to tell their story was something that fit me. I mean, maybe it's my Irish heritage. I don't know. I've always been the storyteller. I've always been the guy around the campfire that can tell you a shaggy dog story and make it go on for 45 minutes. I mean... I heard Ron Nixon say in the podcast, Ron Livingston, sorry. But I love that you call him Ron Nixon. I always think of them in their cast name because I demanded <laughs> that they do that throughout the year-long production. Ron said, Dale Dye's just a natural storyteller and keeps you entertained. And I guess that's true, but I try to do them as an element of teaching. I always find a way to bring it back around to what I'm trying to tell them. And what I've found, and I think almost every human being who's undergone the educational experience understands, is that the teachers you remember and the teachers you absorb things from are teachers who entertain you. I guess in some ways I turned out to be a natural entertainer as well as a teacher. 1985, you left the service and moved to L.A., thinking you could take the skills you'd learn as a combat correspondent and apply them to the art of making movies. You've said, as a Vietnam veteran, 
The thing that really drove you was that you were bristling at the constant Hollywood portrayal of Vietnam psycho vet as villain in movie after movie after movie. Was that really the first motivator to fix that? Yeah, I was a little sick of that, as were, I think, most Vietnam veterans. And I said, what's the scoop here? And the more I looked at it, the more I said, well, you know who's driving this train is popular media, is Hollywood. I said, well, if I'm going to derail that damn train and fix it and present some sort of real look at the hows and the whys and the wherefores about that war, then I'd better find my place in the popular media and get that done. And that's what I went out to do. You discovered that movies had military advisors, but these were mostly there to make sure the uniforms looked right. The rifles were held correctly. What you wanted to do was to infuse movies with an understanding of the military culture, the mentality, the emotions. You wanted to teach Hollywood, quote, how soldiers look, think, walk, talk, and fight in the real world. I needed to teach them how the military feels. I wanted to get inside the uniform. And up to that point, most people had said, well, if the uniform is right and then he's an actor, he'll say whatever's nonsense. He doesn't understand it, so he cannot conceivably convey it. And I knew that. I inherently knew that. They had people long before me that did the business of here's how you wear your uniform and here's how you carry your rifle and here's how you reload it. And here's how you growl. If you're going to be this guy, you know, you got to talk this way here. I said, you know, that's so much absolute steaming horse crap. We need to find a way to get inside their minds. We need to get inside their hearts. We need to get inside their guts. And to do that, I've got to own them. And I've got to put them in those situations so that they have no escape. Mentally, physically, emotionally, they have no escape. They've got to deal with with those things that are so strange to them. You wanted to make sure that never again would Rambo shoot a rocket-propelled grenade out of a helicopter. Well, that certainly pissed me off, because anybody who's ever ridden in a helicopter and who has ever fired an RPG or any other sort of recoilless rocket launcher knows that the first thing that would happen is you'd blow your own helicopter right out of the air. So it was those kind of mistakes. But again, those were physical mistakes, and that can be fixed. I wanted to get inside Rambo's dark, horrible mind and fix that whole whole thing. Thank God I never had that opportunity. I don't know what I would have done. Even for you, Captain Die, that would be a mission of no return. But you'd heard that Oliver Stone was making Platoon and, quote, like a Marine on a mission... You found a way of buttonholing him. Tell us how that went down. Stone, a former Vietnam vet, ultimately did bring you on for Platoon, and the film's realism empowered it to win four Academy Awards. I was about to give up. I really hadn't scored any success with anybody out here. You know, they threw me off a lot of movie lots, and very few people (laughs) would give me the time of day to try to explain why I I should be allowed to mistreat the hell out of their actors. You know, they just said, look, kid, We've been making military movies for 30 years without you, and we've done real well. We made a pot full of money. Why do we need your ass? Why do we want you to help us out? (laughs) And I was about to give up. And then I had learned to read the trade papers, you know, Daily Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And I saw an article, I think it was Daily Variety, that said a relatively uh, heretofore unknown writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone was going to do a movie about his experience in Vietnam. He was a combat infantryman. And I said, you know, if I can get to this guy, if I can just in two minutes explain to him why I think we should train these guys in what we went through and give them that experience, that his movie will sing. There were some things that went on that I'm not going to tell you about because the statute of limitations may not have run out yet. But I did get a two-minute meeting with Oliver Stone, and we sniffed each other like a couple of strange dogs. He decided that he had the bona fides and I had the bona fides. And I explained to him what I thought. I said, look, nobody who hasn't been there will understand the experience that we had. If you will let me give them that experience, you'll have a platoon of actors that will be us, that will 
tell the story from the inside because they understand it. And he bought it. He said, you know, I think you're right. And the next thing you know, he gave me 33 actors, including Johnny Depp and Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe and Forrest Whitaker and on and on and on to take into the mountains, the jungle mountains of the Philippines for three weeks. And they lived exactly like we lived when we were in Vietnam. I made it as tough and as hard on them as I could. And when I brought them down out of the mountains of the Philippines after three weeks, they were us. They were me and they were Oliver. And we went on and made that little $5 million film, brought it home, won four Academy Awards. Oliver was very kind to recognize my role in it at the Academy Awards. At that point, my phone never stopped ringing. Nothing succeeds like success in Hollywood. That was the beginning of the whole Captain Die methodology. And it set you up for all that's followed. You worked again with Stone on Born on the 4th of July. That led to Saving Private Ryan, which led to Band of Brothers. And you've said, I believe sincerely that the reason that war stories keep getting made into films is because you can run the gamut of human emotions. Yeah. And I'm fascinated. You're a man of authenticity, but in becoming a Hollywood storyteller, how did you have to tune down or recalibrate your own knowledge of war and move away at times from verisimilitude in the name of Hollywood's dramatic arc? Well, I think the key to that, Roger, is you have to understand what's important to a story. There are departures that you'll have to make for dramatic purposes. I understand that now. Perhaps I didn't understand it early on, but I certainly understand it now. My feeling about it all is, look, very often, in fact, most often, the truth is much more dramatic and interesting than something Wee Willie Winky, the writer, comes up with because he's had a bad night. And so what I try to do is understand the communication that's intended. What is the image that's intended? If that image is true, if that image is part of history, then no problem. If it's something somebody is making up, the idea is to say, look, I understand where you're going with this. I know what you're trying to communicate. Here's an option. This is the reality of it. If you do it this way, it'll communicate exactly the same thing, only it will be accurate. I try to reach that middle ground. You've said the death scenes are what trouble you the most because Hollywood requires dramatic deaths for their lead characters. You even have names for them. The funky chicken, the screaming mama. Can you just describe what they are, Captain Duck? I mean, I've seen way too many men actually killed in combat. It's a strange experience. It's nothing like what you see in the movies for the most part. If a man is killed by high explosive, he usually just shreds and drops. If a man's killed by gunshot wounds, it's like watching a puppet or a marionette and you just cut the strings and he drops. And to me, that real image conveys the fine line between life and death and how quickly that line can be crossed. And you see a guy hit and blood spurts everywhere and he waves his arms and does a little pee-pee dance. That doesn't happen. And the problem is filmmakers may think it, oh, well, that's, that's explanatory or expository of the horror of war. No, what's expository of the horror of war is how easy it is to die and how simple that death is and therefore how dramatic it is. That conversation really leads us to your methodology, that authenticity, that attempt to capture human truth from combat on film. And first of all, what's the secret of taking, in your words, a bunch of, quote, weenie actors who think the sun rises and sets on their asinine selves. And I love that quote. And until we started to speak together, you know, now I can truly imagine it coming from your mouth, Captain Die. But how do you transform them into a similar ballpark, I'd say, of true bona fide warrior American fighting men? Well, you can never completely do it, but I can get as close as I think anybody has. And it comes from understanding the psychology of a military unit. It comes from understanding what's going on in hearts and minds. It comes from understanding the relationship, the intertwined relationship between men who are in combat or who are serving in a military unit, how they rely on each other. Actors, by the nature of what they do, 
tend to be self-focused. How many lines do I have? How's my hair? And I get that. But it's not at all how military people think. That's the antithesis of how military people think. And so you've got to put them in a situation that they understand that the sun does not rise and set on my glowing ass. It rises and sets on this unit. And this unit is me. This unit is what embodies me and what embodies the story and what embodies the mission. And that takes some doing. You've got to unplug yourself. And in order to unplug yourself, I mean, the easiest way is just to reduce everybody to a common denominator and make them all suffer in the same fashion. And then suddenly they begin to understand that they must rely on the guy next to them. That it doesn't make any difference if he's a background extra or he only has one line or whatever the deal is. He's part of the unit. And therefore, I have to have a close and intimate relationship with him, an understanding of him, and he has to have the same with me. But is it really possible to teach them fear, which is the central thrust of this episode, Carantan, episode three? You know, I think of that Churchill quote that nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. And these men have never been shot at. They haven't been shot at with anything that's going to penetrate them and hurt. But I've shot at them a lot, and I intend to. I give them a taste. And so much of fear in combat is uncertainty. What's going to happen next? Will we spring an ambush? Will we hit a mine? And it's that uncertainty that's the well of fear. If you knew what was going to happen, you could deal with yourself and get it done. But you don't know that. You never will know that. And so part of my training is to not let them know what's going to happen, not let them know whether it's going to hurt, whether it's going to not hurt. And it unsettles them and gives them a taste of that uncertainty from which fear springs. Another Dale Dye quote, I have to pull out all the civilian crapola. I wear their ass out through PT, digging their own holes, sleeping two hours a day. They get two meals a day. I love this line. They get two meals a day unless they piss me off. Your conclusion is you want to make them blank slates and boot camp break soldiers down. But Captain Dye, when I read your work, I have to keep reminding myself These are Hollywood bloody actors, as you say, full of self-importance. They think about chewing up the scenery, about stealing scenes, about the number of lines, the allure of the spotlight. Do any of them push back? They must do. Tell us how that occurs and what you do. There is some pushback. I've been fortunate at this point in my career where the actors who are going into training with me know what's coming. They say, "Uh uh-oh. This is that old white-haired, hard-ass bastard. Here we go. And I get that. But I think part of the success in this training evolution that I do is to convince them that it's not about you personally. I do that by putting them in situations where an individual can't survive, an individual can't succeed. He needs those around him. And that tends to defocus their concern with themselves, their absolute tight focus on themselves. And that needs to be done. And it's an amazing transition. You see it. You actually see it happen. You see them say, I could do this and that would make me look cool, but it would hurt this guy and this guy and this guy. So I won't do that. When you begin to see that happen, you know that you're getting to the right place with them. Because you also promised them, and a number of them have talked about how this happened through your process, you promised them you are going to hit walls and breaking through those walls will change your life. There is something powerful at the individual level. Well, that's true. It applies almost uh, throughout any endeavor that human beings make. You're going to come up against psychological walls, things that just seem too hard. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. All of that is neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is you must do it. And I'll put you in a situation where you must do it or not survive. And by survive, I mean, you won't get this job. You won't perform properly. But you're going to hit those physical and psychological walls. And I explain that to them. I say, don't be afraid of the walls. The walls are there to be destroyed. The walls are there to be knocked down. And when you do that, suddenly you get an insight. Suddenly you get an understanding that you're stronger and smarter 
and more rugged than you think you are. And once you get to that point, your life changes. There were hundreds of moments on Band of Brothers that illustrated that with several of the guys in training. David Schwimmer, I was a little worried about that going in because David Schwimmer was only one, quote, movie star that we had really at that point. I told my cadre staff, I said, I do not want him treated any differently. Absolutely, he does everything that everybody else does. And David did. He put himself into a lone wolf situation, but he's a smart guy. And he understood the group psychology, understood what was going on. But he got hurt. Probably the infiltration course or the obstacle course. David hurt a knee. Hurt to the extent that I had to evacuate it and get it treated. And this was like two days before I was going to take the unit to the number one RAF parachute school at Bryce Norton to run them through ground parachute training. And I said, well, I guess we've lost him. I probably won't see Captain Sobel again. But we went on with the training and I explained to the guys, look, it's like losing a man in combat or losing a man injured. You just have to ignore it and move on. We'll think about it later. We can't think about it now. And lo and behold, we were getting packed up to go to parachute school at Bryce Norton and David Schwimmer shows up and he's got his knee wrapped and everything else. And I went and I said, Sobel? What's the story here? You know, we're going to be jumping from towers. We're going to be doing parachute landing falls, hanging landings. Is your knee going to take that? And he said, Captain, I have braced this bastard with everything except an erector set, and I am going to parachute school. And I said, Sobel, get aboard the bus, because I knew right then he had gotten it. That was that transformative moment. He was not going to miss this. And not because it was cool for Captain Sobel with the role or David Schwimmer, the actor. It was cool because he wanted to be with that unit. He did not want to miss the pinnacle of that unit's training. And that's a transformative <sighs> moment. David Schwimmer, the underrated tenacity of oh, Schwimmer's Willis Reed at the Garden moment. The other part of the story that's fascinating is the way you force the actors to stop using their real names, address themselves to each other as their characters. You stop calling Schwimmer, Schwimmer, he became Sobel. What did you see when that happens? Did you witness Damian Lewis become Dick Winters? Matthew Settle become Spears? Absolutely. Look, I have to get to three places. I have to get in their mind, in their heart, and in their guts. And part of getting in their mind is removing David Schwimmer from the equation and bringing Captain Herbert Sobel into the equation, removing Damian Lewis from the equation and bringing in Captain Dick Winters. It puts them in the right mindset to accept the fact that they are going to be this person and I am going to show you how to be that person. And I'm going to show you in such detail that you'll understand not only who that person is, how he looked, how he wore his uniform, how he carried his weapon, but you'll understand a bit of how he felt, how he related to the guy next to him. Who of the cast would have made the most natural soldier and why? Damian Lewis would have made a good soldier. He's a thinking guy. He's physically tough. Ron Livingston would probably say he would have never made a soldier. Yes, he would. And he probably would have made a good one. Frank John Hughes would have made a good soldier. Jimmy Matteo would have made a good soldier. There are a number of them who could have done just fine in a military environment. You said the actors who could have been the most natural soldiers are the ones who listen more than they talk. It's clear to me that that applies pretty well across the board. The less you talk, the more <laughs> you can listen. <laughs> One gent who was clearly listening, Matthew Settle, Lieutenant Ronald Spears. He came to you, I believe, shortly before shooting began and told you he was having a crisis of confidence as an actor. And your advice to him, he told us two words, just soldier. What does that mean? Well, it was interesting that Matthew was having that sort of crisis in putting his performance up because he'd been good in training, but he'd been unsure of himself. He overcompensated in certain ways. He would do things that were more actorish than they were soldierish. And I noticed that. While we were training, I had talked to him and I said, you need to focus. You need to understand what you're doing and forget about how it looks and how it feels or anything else. You just need to understand what you're doing. I thought that was the end of it. It wasn't. Matthew was still unsure. And so I said, look, let me meet him off duty 
if you will, and we'll talk to him. And he poured his heart out to me. And it's very rewarding when one of the people you're training does that. That moment, I was kind of Uncle Captain. And he was saying to me, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't. And I said, listen, you have to reach down and remember those things in training. You have to remember those feelings, the way you felt when certain things happened, the way you felt when we put you in charge of certain people. I said, that is called soldiering. And what I want you to do is forget everything and just soldier. And for some reason, as simplistic as that sounds, as difficult as it is for someone to understand who hasn't really been through it, that did it for Matthew. He said, I think I've got it. And I said, just soldier. And he did. And he produced a brilliant performance. Well, hear Matthew's version of that story, Captain Die, coming up a little later in this very podcast. But the other transformative moment for so many of these actors was when they met the real heroes that they were depicting. Oh, yeah. You're a military man. These heroes are military men. What did you see happen in those encounters? Can you take us there and describe what happens in those moments? I see the veterans, to some extent, looking into a mirror. I recall watching Wild Bill and Babe Heffron talking to the guys who were playing them, and I backed away a few steps to see what was going on here. And of course, you know, Wild Bill is Wild Bill. They're both South Philly guys, and they're talking like this here, and I'm telling you, you should listen. And while both actors were standing there nodding, and their eyes were wide, and they were in the presence of genuine heroes and the people that they were portraying on screen, what I was seeing in Babe and Wild Bill, for instance, was they were looking into a mirror. They were seeing themselves in those days. I said, if they are looking into a mirror here, then we have accomplished what we were trying to do. We're going to represent them in the way that not only they want, because they're very humble guys. You wouldn't believe it sometimes to hear them talk over a beer, but they're very humble guys. To see them light up like that, to see them looking at younger them that is now going to be presented to the world at large was a tremendously rewarding experience. What about Dick Winters and your encounters with him? Major Dick Winters is an extraordinary human being, very self-effacing and very professional in a soldierly manner. When I met him, I had showed him my training schedule and said, sir, uh, can you take a look? Can you suggest anything that I might do differently? And he had read it. He'd read it the night before. And he said, you know, Captain, I think this should be adequate. Of course, it's not really the aspect of the training. It's the quality of the training. It's the leadership. And I said, yes, sir, I understand that full well. And he said, I don't have anything particular to add except do it well and hang tough. And I said, yes, sir, I absolutely will do that. And I wanted him to come and observe. And in the moment he said, no, I don't think I will, what I sensed was not that Dick Winters wasn't interested. Lord knows he was. But he trusted me as a subordinate, as a fellow officer. He trusted me to do it right. And to me, that was the world's greatest compliment, that he would say, no, I don't want to come out and monitor what you're doing. I trust you to do it. You are the young company commander. I'm the old battalion commander. I was fired up because nothing inspires a leader more than being given a basic mission and no further guidance. This is what I want you to do. It is up to you as a professional to get it done. And that's what Dick Winters did with me. He left before we finished training. And I never really had a chance to say, well, what do you think? Or will you come and see him? Or And while I was securing from the training evolution... One of the assistant directors came by and handed me a copy of Band of Brothers, Stephen Ambrose's book. And hell, I had three or four copies of that, all annotated and notes and everything else. So I said, well, that's nice, but Major Winters should know that I've read this book. And he said, no, 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 look inside it. And I opened it up, and he had written inside it, Captain Die, I think you would have made Colonel Sink proud. Dick Winters, Hank Tough. To me, that was the Academy Award. That was the Emmy of my life right there, that Dick Winters thought that Colonel Sink would have been proud of the way I trained that unit. Those are moments that are, you know, locked in your heart and in your mind and will always be there. The other part of your job 
is ensuring each scene feels authentic. And episode three, Carantan, is one of the most action-packed of the series, filled with firefights, tank battles, storming of villages. How's your role in episodes like this different than some of the more subtle, quieter Band of Brothers episodes? Well, the combat episodes are the most fun for all of us, as a matter of fact. But we approached Carantan when we began to shoot it. I went up with the director and we looked over the terrain and the set. And I was casting a soldier's eye on it. I was saying, all right, this would be a base of fire here. And we'll make this approach over here. And second platoon will take that line of buildings over there. And the director said to me, look, what do you think? Camera here, camera there. And your guys will come in here. I said, listen, honestly, here's what I would do. I said, let me talk to the guys. Let me issue a field order. Let me issue an order for this attack. And let's see what they do, because I think what they do is going to absolutely fit the image you're trying to convey here. But he said, can we rehearse it? And I said, sure we can. Watch this. And I went up and I got with Lieutenant Winters at that point. I got with the platoon commanders and I said, gents, we're going to conduct a single envelopment with a base of fire here. Armor will be on our right, we'll be on the left. This is our access road, this is our route of attack. Once you're inside, I want you to split to the left. First platoon will take that building, second platoon will take that building, third platoon, come in with the tanks. And everybody said, got it, sir. I know how to do that, let's do it. And so we got up and instead of saying action, I said, execute. And boom, they went. And the director was watching, and he said, whoa. And he moved a couple of camera positions and a number of other. He said, yeah, that's it. That's the master. We'll shoot that, and then we'll cover it. It worked out just as though we were doing a documentary coverage of actual assault. And that's how Carantan began. How about in post-production and editing? What insight are you giving in those situations as the story is being pieced together? They'll pull us into editing, into Foley stages where we want specific sounds that we may not have captured. A magazine change on an automatic weapon, or we miss the sound of the feed cover slamming down on a machine gun because something else covered it, or there wasn't a mic close enough and we missed it. And so I'd say, you know, there, as he loaded that machine gun, If he slams that feed cover down, you know right away that he's ready to go back into action. We need that sound. And, well, how do we get that? Well, in many cases, we go in and we slam a feed cover on a 1919 A4 caliber machine gun. We've gone so far sometimes as to hang microphones in a side of beef and fire actual live rounds into it to pick up the smack of rounds hitting flesh. This is why the authenticity to which you've given the second phase of your career is, to me, so crucial. You grew up mesmerized by the John Wayne movies, the epics that heroicize war and warriors. You know, Tom Hanks told me that he wants people to look at Band of Brothers and say, this is not a celebration of nostalgia. This is actually an examination of the very human condition. What message do you believe is at the heart of Band of Brothers? I think Tom's right. It is not an examination of nostalgia, nor is it by any stretch of the imagination an in-depth examination of war. It is an examination of the human condition. It is an examination of a certain amount of human beings, a certain type of human being, that is willing to see something larger and more important than himself, that there was something worth sacrificing for, that there was something worth suffering for, that there was an injustice in the world that needed correcting. And they were willing to serve and sacrifice in order to try and help correct that injustice. A message that has never been more poignant, perhaps, than in our time. And it's a recurring message in the body of work you've done. Last question for you, Captain Dye. The storytelling that you have your fingerprints all over, starting with Platoon, Born in the 4th of July, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers. These, these are some of the most definitive devices that have explained war to generations of Americans. And you, Captain Dye, have played such a major part in that. Are you aware of the significance of your life's work? Well, I like to think um, <clears throat> I like to think I can be relatively humble and self-effacing about this. <laughs> it does make me proud. I mean, I think I've helped. I think I've contributed. But I think 
less than bringing an understanding of war to the nation or to the world through my work, what I've really brought is an examination and an explanation of soldiers, the soldier's heart, who we are, how we react, what things we think are important, what things we're willing to sacrifice for, and how much sacrifice we're willing to make. If I've brought something, I hope it's that understanding. And through that understanding and appreciation of what our men and women in uniform have given to us all throughout the history of our country, and to the extent that I've helped in that regard, I'm happy with it. And if something like that is all there is on my tombstone besides born, died, that'll do. Oh, Captain Dye, thank you for your service and thank you for your storytelling. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. I appreciate it. One of my favourite parts of that conversation, Captain Dye, on his advice to Matthew Settle. Just soldier. And I love it because it clearly resonated. Here to talk with us now is the man who played one of the most lionized, enigmatic characters in the entire Band of Brothers series, Captain Spears. A complex gent, in Stephen Ambrose's words, an officer with a mythical reputation. He became the last commander of Easy Company, actually led them longer than the great Dick Winters himself. The two were two very different leaders, Spears, both fearless and feared, a truly intimidating figure. Let's just say, he was the kind of guy you should never accept a cigarette off. It's a joy to welcome the man who brought the man and the myth alive, Mr. Matthew Settle. Hi, Raj. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, Matthew, it's a joy to be with you. A gent who has done two of the most fearless things I've ever seen on the television screen, running through the German lines at Foy, and as Rufus in Gossip Girl going head-to-head with Billy Baldwin to protect the honour of Lily van der Woodson. <laughs> Band of Brothers began casting in the early days of your career. You've been working in TV movies, just gotten your first feature, The Magnificent I Still Know What You Did Last <laughs> Summer, when you heard about Hanks and Spielberg's miniseries. And I know you originally read for the part of Winters and Nixon. I believe you stayed up all night before the audition working on your character. Tell us what happened when you walked into that room. The group of people, several producers, including Tony Cho and Meg Lieberman and Tom Hanks and Spielberg's running around the room with a camera in your face. And I was delighted to be there and just observing, I would say, perhaps fearless. I didn't have anything to lose. I was game to just try anything. They asked me to read for Winters. I read that. I read it with a couple of different actors. Then I came back to read for Nixon a separate time. You would be given enormous numbers of sides to make sure you could carry it off. And you didn't have a lot of time to prepare. So... It's going to require working all night to get it done. So when I came in to do Nixon and Winters in Bastogne as Nixon, we started to read the role and Tom just said, you know, no, 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 you're not Nixon. You're not. I said, well, can you at least let me get this off my chest? I mean, I stayed up all night working. It's, you know, you're an actor. You know how it is. You just want to let it go. So he's like, oh, you're going to show us how well you do the cold of Bastogne. And I said, well, if you're so good at it, just get up here and do it with me. Hilariously, he did. He got up and we auditioned together and we got halfway through it. He said, get out of here. Go read this. Go read Spears. So he sent me out. He basically wanted me to do it cold. I had about 20 minutes to become familiar with it. They were all waiting. And I came back in the room and he said, this is the one. This is the character. Go home. Stay up all night again. Memorize it and be here tomorrow with bells on. So that was it. You had created that opportunity with your chutzpah to Hanks. Hanks saw something in you. The feeling I got from the idea of the character of Spears, what he represented, a fortitude of resolve and acceptance in him, to where it pushes you past the fear of anything in life and you observe almost the absurdities of the hell, purgatory, whatever situation we're in. And then you say, well, I'll make the most of it. I'll enjoy being shot at by a howitzer or by an 88. I'll find that amusing. If I've given up my moral right when I signed in, there's a spiritual depth to that or an acceptance of faith. That's the sense I got from him. So I think when I went into the audition, I kind of had that sensibility anyway. Once you won the part, how did you go about preparing for it? Because in an interview, you once said, having grown up in North Carolina, 
you were in your family and in your church around so many people who had reverence for war, for heroism, for selflessness. My dad was a Marine. He was the chief swimming instructor at Paris Island. He was too young for World War II, but all of his brothers were there. You know, so I spent quite a bit of time with them and each had a different way of dealing with their memories. And they were all very proud when I won this role. One person you were not able to tap into was Spears. And Spears was still alive. He'd retired from a long and successful army career, ultimately became a lieutenant colonel, settled in California and then Montana. But he didn't sit with Stephen Ambrose for the book and you didn't meet with him ahead of filming. Why was that? Well, I would be speculating, but it seems like some of the stories I've heard is that Spears didn't like the way the book talked about his first wife. Ambrose's book claimed that Spears' wife in England left him because her first husband, this is complicated, whom they thought had been killed in action, was actually still alive. But in a later letter to Major Winters, Spears explained that she wasn't a widow and had never been married before. She just didn't want to leave her own family in England and move to America with him. There was a characterization in the book that he felt was incorrect, called her widow, and she wasn't a widow. He had a son by this woman named Robert. Perhaps the other thing is the ideas of war crimes that were being thrown around. The very notion of some of the acts that he did, that made him fearful. Why would you want your kids to know that part of your dark history? So don't interview. When he sent his son, Robert, the book, he said, take these with a pinch of salt. There's going to be stories in there. And that obviously takes us to boot camp, the fable pre-production experience in which most of the cast were put through their paces to prepare for the rigors and mindset of the shoot ahead. You really developed a sense of the Spears character in boot camp. Yeah, it was easy to fall into the role. Constantly being in uniform, we did live firefights, right? Where we had rounds and we went out and we were attacked by role players and it was cold and noisy. And one of the nights when it kind of dropped in, we had stayed up all night and the officers got together and got our maps out and we started plotting a position to find something that Captain Dye had put on the map for us. So we had to learn due north versus north. So as we're doing that, I'm watching Nixon and Winters and quietly withdrew from the rest of them and just started observing them. And at some point, I was able to just simply offer a suggestion. It turned out to be absolutely correct when we were a little bit lost. And it was just a random event. But the way it fell out, it helped me really feel at that moment that I was playing this role. The other person who gave you a true sense of the character was Dale Dyke. Can you take us into those conversations? The trainer who eventually ended up playing Sink in the series Band of Brothers. What did he teach you? Well, I had this wonderful occasion. I called up Dale right before we started shooting. And I said, Dale, can I have a beer with you at the pub? And he's like, yeah. And so he met me and I said, how am I going to do this? I started having doubts. And he said, you've already done it. You're already there. Just soldier. He's like, you are the essence. Just don't doubt it. And then you won't lose the essence. Just remember your training. And that was incredibly helpful. So anytime I had a doubt, I had somewhere to put it. It was in the hands of this form of Dale Dye and that conversation we had over a pint. So in the words of the great Dale Dye, as he told you, you were not an actor weenie anymore. And I believe you still have a hernia from the atomic sit-ups. Is that true? I think it's pretty healed by now. (laughs) But I did for a long time. I did for a long time. As far as preparing for the role, I had the luxury after we did our boot camp. The first episode I was not in. Because Spears was originally in Dog Company and didn't join Easy until after the chaos of the drop in Normandy. So you were not in episode one, Curahy, and you took the opportunity to do what? I decided to retrace as many of his steps as I could to go to Marmalon and to the Ardennes and went to Foy and ending up at the Eagle's Nest, the Alderhorst. I went all the way. I wanted to see the fireplace that had been chipped off where all the soldiers had used the butt of their M1s to take a piece of that fireplace in the octagon of the Alderhorst. It was fascinating to go to all the museums to see the multiple faiths of nationalities of people that were joined in memoriam, the cemeteries that stretched from Braycourt Manor to Bastogne and to Foy to Noville. Yeah, it's incredibly moving. And then you go and you see, obviously, what we're fighting for. You see some of the museums that were about the Holocaust and the great evil that was thrust upon mankind. A lot of gruesome stuff, a lot of gruesome pictures. So that helped, I think, with that bottom quality. When you look at Spears, how you portray him, he had a mysterious 
scary quality. He's almost a spectral figure, Matthew, throughout the series. He just seems to keep appearing out of nowhere. Another thing about Spears, it points to him being sort of an interested observer of the situation he was in, and which was, hey, here's a candelabra. Here's a... Uh, <laughs> I was just reading uh, recently, there were some bodies and they were frozen in Bastogne, an 88 observation team, and there was a very nice pair of binoculars. So, well, he doesn't need them anymore. I'll take those. There was a great interview on the podcast History Hacks, and you said Rick Gomez, who plays Luz, can tell a joke and everyone laughs. But if I tell the exact same joke, there's just an eerie silence. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant, though? Let's talk about this episode, Karen Tant. First of all, this one hour, five minutes packs in so many incredible action scenes. Truly brutal, truly horrific, confusing, terrifying. What would they like to shoot? You feel like you're there. You're transported in time. The only thing that breaks that up is seeing uh, someone say action or seeing a crew. What's it like? The set builders, the designers, there's people that are so meticulous about every detail, the thread on fabric, on clothing. And, uh, you know, they create this world that easily transports. It makes your job so easy. And then all you have to do is empathize and have respect for every aspect of why your character does what they do. So you've got to develop a system of believing why they believe what they believe. I mean, I assume this was take after take, attack after attack. Did your adrenaline burn off and it became exhausting or was it just full on mania every time? Oh, no, it's every time it's emotional. Every time it's exciting. You never know what's going to happen. An adrenaline rush the whole time. This is an episode that's filled with machine guns, with explosions, with action. But your scenes are often the quietest and yet somehow always the most intense, more than any shootout. None more than your nighttime encounter with Blythe. You know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? I was scared. We're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe... The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. Without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends upon it. All war depends upon it. What a moment. That's a pinnacle scene. That was really almost a point of focus up until that point. I was focusing on that scene for months until we shot it. Every day I was focused on that scene because it's a pinnacle element in the entire series. Whether it's Dyke or Blythe, you have the natural need in us to run. You don't trust your fate. Run. Don't trust the Almighty. Run. Get out of here. This is crazy. This is madness. But here is this vision walking out of the darkness saying, accept it. Move through it. You're going to be okay. Because you're already dead, brother. It just all led up to that one moment. And I think it was a moment that served the series. And I'm very happy it served it in the way that it did. And my family members that were all in the service were proud of it. Can you give us an inner sense of how you thought through how to deliver it with such incredible art? It's quite simple. You just cut away all the fat. You just render it. You get rid of all the fat. And so that's like every day you run it through your mind and you sit there and you say, get me out of the way. Let me serve this character. Let me hold me. You get to that point and there's nothing there except what is. Other times you're like, your brain comes in and says, oh, let me be the hero. Let me, you know, and you got to get rid of that crap. And then it's like, oh, everybody agrees. So I got to be of service to that. That's incredible because Spears, I mean, he comes across as a character where less is more, far more. Yeah, sometimes that's why I think he was a deeply spiritual man, because when you get to the end of yourself and know who you really are, there's not much to prove. There's just do the job at hand and serve others. He's an incredible leader in the crucible of pressure. And in this show, there's Dick Winters, who's depicted as a hero. At the other end of the spectrum, there's David Schwimmer's Herbert Sobel. How would you describe Spears' leadership? Because it's somewhere in the grey zone between the two. I think he knew that he had to be aloof with his men and not be buddies. He had to maintain that space and that respect because he knew it. Any moment, you might have to order them to their own demise. So 
as a commanding officer, you have to maintain that. I think he also knew that the mystery is very powerful. Like when he says, I bet if you went back 2,000 years, you'd hear a couple of centurions standing around him yakking about how Tercius lopped off the heads of some Carthaginian prisoners. Well, maybe they kept talking about it because they never heard Tercius deny it. Maybe that's because Tercius knew there was some value to the men thinking he was the meanest, toughest son of a bitch in the whole Roman Legion. So to maintain the mystery, it's a natural energy to help get the job done. So when the men are afraid of you, he realized, oh, I can use this and it, we can end the war as quickly as possible. And I can do my part in making that happen. You talk about mystery. I mean, he was truly a larger than life figure for the men of Easy Company. You know, there were rumors that he shot one of his own sergeants between the eyes for getting drunk. There was the gunning down of the German prisoners after D-Day. And in episode three, we got Merck, Pencala and Malarkey reliving that story, clearly not for the first time. Spears comes across this group of kraut prisoners, digging a hole or some such, under guard and all. He breaks out a pack of smokes, passes them out. He even gives them a light. Then all of a sudden, he swings up his Thompson and he hoses him. I mean, goddamn. Gives him smokes first? You see, that's why I don't believe he really did it. Oh, you don't believe it? Whoa, whoa, you didn't see I it? heard he didn't do it. What was it like when you shot that Rushamon sequence where you filmed using your Tommy gun to scythe down the German POWs? That shot of the survivor with a cigarette burning through his fingers, one of the most haunting of the entire series. Was it tense on set that day? Not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Not for me, no. I remember the cigarettes being an act of mercy. It was like an act of grace. And so for me, it was like, we've got to solve this situation here, as I imagined what it would be like for Spears had he actually done that. And so giving the cigarettes was a proper distraction from their fate. So for me, playing straight act of grace, here, cigarette, cigarette, and then keeping it with nothing on it was the way to approach it. Did he do that? I don't know. I think that the series ultimately presented it correctly, where they leave it up to the observer, to the audience. In between takes, did everyone just chat and laugh and smoke and hang out? Or was there, was there a heaviness on set? There was so much going on. There was dead horses everywhere, all kinds of activity. It was like a city of activity. So in between takes, the producers, they're already on to the next scene. So yeah, it wasn't like that at all. So it's really within you. The performance or what's going to happen is just within me. And then the camera's there to catch it. Because as soon as that camera stopped rolling, it's just madness. It's crazy. Like, do we have this? Are we going to get this? Spears' bravery, which borders on insanity, is on display again in episode 7. After relieving Lieutenant Norman Dyke during the assault on the town of Foy, Spears realises it's down to him to link up with I Company, which is on the other side of town. And Ronald Spears, being Ronald Spears, decides to make an exposed sprint into the open, as narrated by the great Donnie Wahlberg. At first the Germans didn't shoot at him. I think they couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. But that wasn't the really astounding thing. The astounding thing was that after he hooked up with Eye Company, he came back. Tom Hanks told us there were some concerns about putting the run between the lines in the show because people wouldn't believe it, despite the fact it actually happened. How did you understand why Spears did what he did? A number of historians have wondered whether he actually had a death wish. I don't think he had a death wish at all. I think he was just accepting that he was already dead. It's very simple. And getting the job done. When he had to run through and connect with iCompany, it was a matter of necessity. And so to wait and hesitate would narrow your odds. You know, he was a numbers guy. He studied accounting, so he probably played the odds very quickly. Hey, if I run straight through the German line, they're not going to be expecting it. And that's my best chance to reach iCompany. That's what's needed. Don't hesitate, move. And suddenly you come back because they definitely won't expect you to come back. 
<laughs> so it's that split moment where you go, I know human nature because humans are usually going to slink down and see if something else will save them and make it happen. But when you let go of that and you say, no, let's just do what needs to be done. There you go. No death wish, but you could die anyway. So we got to get the job done. When you finish shooting Band of Brothers at the wrap, you and Ian Bailey, who played Webster, you burnt your boots. Can you take us there? What did that feel like? Was it relief? Was it joy? It was a ritual of closure. I suggested it and said, why don't we do this? Because I can't really fill them. I can't fill the boots of what these guys did. And he's like, done. Grabbed a can of petrol and off we went. It was the sense that having great respect for my uncles and other people that actually did this, and realizing I'm an actor. It wasn't a lack of respect for myself for the job or what it represented. I wanted to make the statement that I can't fill the boots. So for some reason at that point in my life, at that age, I thought that was important to make the statement. You eventually met Spears himself after the shoot at the premiere in Normandy. And an amazing fact from Hanks, apparently the real Spears would only agree to go to the series premiere after Winters called him up and convinced him that he wouldn't be arrested for war crimes. I remember talking to one Lon McClung and Spears together at a hotel in Paris. And I think one Lon and Shifty knew that Spears was worried about that. And so one Lon offered a story about him. He shot down an aircraft and it turned out to be a British aircraft. So if that's true, there was one Lon willing to share that story to maybe show camaraderie with Spears. He was trying to say, you're not alone. You sat next to him and Winters during the screening. Can you take us there and tell us what you witnessed? Okay, so yes, that was incredible. I was sat next to Spears and Winters and there was enough light to just see their faces looking up at the screen at the jump into Normandy. They were there again. There was an intensity. It was almost like there was this element of disbelief in them seeing the screen and then a re-witness of what an amazing feat they had been part of. Oh my God, we really did that. Yeah, it was incredible to sit there next to them in awe, like a fly on the wall to be able to see their reckoning. It's awe-inspiring. In that initial premiere episode, there wasn't a lot of my work there, but they showed some excerpts from each episode. And one of them was Blythe and myself. It made me feel humbled. Spears, was he over the moon with my performance? I don't know. I know that when we saw him a second time in Arizona, because uh, Bull Randleman and Muck wanted to go by his house, we just kind of... You're blown past this story, but this is somewhat incredible. When you were on an impromptu road trip with some of the cast and you guys took a diversion just so you could drop off at his house and knock on his door, right? That's exactly what happened. Maybe it was my idea. I was like, hey, let's just go see him. It was Muck, Randleman, and Malak, it was the four of us. All the cast wanted to meet this legend. So they're like, sure. How did he handle it? He was gracious. Opened the door, made us tea. You know, <laughs> we talked for a few minutes. Didn't talk about anything in the war. We just talked about small talk. A polite, random visit. <laughs> but I think it was interesting for him to see these young actors in awe of him. There are these random people in my home. But that's okay. Let him in. What kind of a man had he become? Quiet. Gentle. Nothing to prove. You've said that as you become a man, you wake up to realities you are not aware of as a youth. And he was a man with a definite, a definite awareness of those things. And that will quiet you down. That'll humble anyone. You start realizing some of the things that you didn't know as a youth, and that settles you. <laughs> he was an accepting man, you said, who tried to move on with his life. Accepting in the sense that accepting your fate. And that carried all the way through his life. So that's the sense that I got. Oscar Wilde used to say, you best know a person by the quality of feeling you're left with after they left your presence. It's a vibration you get from somebody, you know? This show, 20 years old now. You know, I have to say, you have barely aged, Matthew Settle. You have obviously gone on to save a long and joyous career. And I, I loved reading the interview where you said, even in the height of your fame as Rufus on Gossip Girl, you still got a ton of guys coming up to you and saying, What's Spears doing on Gossip Girl? You've said Band of Brothers is, quote, the shining star of your career without a doubt. Why is that? The nobility of the cause because of the representation of selflessness in the face of the gravest situation. It's a pinnacle of what man can do for other men. 
And it's something that we hopefully won't ever have to do again. I don't want war to be a part of life, but it is. And so when it is, you have to behave with grace. And I think graciousness is bravery. It demonstrates you're not relying on yourself. You have to believe, you have to have faith that whatever happens is meant to be. It's all part of the plan, a divine plan. And I believe in the divine plan. I'm a man of faith. And so I think these men obviously were men of faith. What's the lesson that you've taken out of life by living as and playing Captain Spears? I would say the biggest lesson is learning to trust how things are going to go out and not fear. Trust yourself. You see that represented in the character as it's portrayed. You see that in all the moves that some might say, oh, that's cowboy, that's garish, that's thoughtless, or that's death wish. So if his faith, which may have seemed reckless to others, was a matter of in the moment, the spirit moved and said, hey, cross the town without thinking. Don't think about your own life. Don't think about your own risk. Get the job done. Go communicate with iCompany. And then come back without thinking because you don't have time to think. And if you take the time to think, then it won't work. Move. Look at the result. Look at the outcome. They won FOI. They maintained Baston. They got the presidential citation and they won the war. Matthew Settle, thank you for talking with us and thank you for bringing such a remarkable, complicated American back to life and honoring his legacy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you, Raj. There's more, much more to come. Next podcast, we talk episode four, replacements, in which Easy Company jump into the Netherlands as part of Operation Market Garden. And we hear from one of Easy's most indelible characters. I don't know whether to slap you, kiss you, or salute you. Yes, we will be joined by Frank John Hughes, the actor who played the one and only Wild Bill Garnier a man with whom he formed a deep relationship in real life and spent several nights out on the lash. I had an early call the next morning one night after five nights of drinking with him. I'm leaving, and I said, I gotta go. I have to shoot in two hours. And he, Bill says, I fought the fucking Germans on no sleep. <laughs> I said, bartender, another round. Make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share. Spread the word. And a reminder, as if you needed one, that you can watch Karen Tan and every episode of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Until next time... Karahe! Karahe!